Welcome to episode 80 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. We get to speak to retired agent Bob Bukowski, who served nearly 25 years with the FBI. Prior to his appointment as a special agent in the Bureau, Bob Bukowski served five years with the Naval Criminal Investigative Service, NCIS. During his Bureau career, he was assigned to international and domestic terrorism, foreign counterintelligence, and violent crime matters, and has worked high-profile investigations involving terrorism, kidnapping, homicides, organized crime, and multi-state violent gangs. In this episode, Bob reviews the multi-state and multi-agency investigation of the kidnapping and murder of New Jersey millionaire Nelson Gross, a violent case that was perpetrated by three teenagers who played hooky from school in order to carry out their plan. After the successful conclusion of this kidnapping and murder case, Bob also served as a team leader in the 9-11 investigation and was interviewed by the 9-11 Commission Committee. Since retiring from the FBI, Bob Bukowski has been employed by the United States Attorney's Office, where he coordinates investigations throughout northern New Jersey between local police departments and federal agencies. These cases are subsequently prosecuted federally. Bob is also an adjunct professor at Fairleigh Dickinson University in Newark, New Jersey, where he teaches criminal justice and terrorism classes. I think you're really going to enjoy hearing from Bob Bukowski about his kidnapping and murder case. But before we get to that interview, I've got some exciting news. In September, FBI Retired Case File Review will reach 1 million downloads. Isn't that exciting? 1 million downloads. And when it does, as a special thank you, For all of you who've been listening, especially those listening from the very first episode, what I will do is I will give you two episodes that week. You'll get your first episode and then I will release a bonus episode. Coming up in September, 1 million downloads. Also coming up in September will be the release of the audiobook version of Pay to Play my FBI crime thriller about a female FBI agent investigating corruption in the Philadelphia strip club industry. I've been listening to the chapters as the voiceover actress has been narrating them, and it is exciting. So those are two very exciting things coming up in September. I also want to take time during this intro to say hello to my newest listeners, Shauna and Simon Garwood from New Zealand. Hi, Shauna. Hi, Simon. Thanks for listening. Hey, have you signed up to be a member of my reader team yet? I have a question for members of my reader team. Now, I know most of you receive my monthly email about the FBI and books, TV and movies. But recently, a friend of mine let me know 
that even though he signed up to be a member of my reader team months ago, he has never received anything from me. And that's too bad because I send out some really good stuff. I send out updates about the FBI and books, TV and movies. I send out direct links to the episode show notes so you can check out the photos, the newspaper articles and videos about the cases that we talk about. I also list the crime fiction that I recommend each month. You get the FBI reading resource, which is a list of all of the books, crime fiction, true crime and memoirs, books about the FBI written by the FBI agents who have been interviewed on this podcast. And I keep you up to date on my own author journey. So I investigated the issue and learned that the problem may have been the email address I was using. It seems that his email provider was sending my email straight to his spam folder. That's not good. Now, most of you have had no problem receiving my monthly email, but I do think I fixed the problem by changing my email address to a domain account. So my email address is now jerrywilliams at jerrywilliams.com. So if you signed up to be a member of my reader team and you have not received my monthly email, could you do me a favor? Could you please add jerrywilliams at jerrywilliams.com to your address book? Thank you. If you're not yet a member of my reader team, all you need to do is go to jerrywilliams.com and sign up where you see the pop-up. I also want to thank everyone who has picked up a copy of Pay to Play. When you pick up a copy of Pay to Play for yourself or as a gift for someone who loves crime fiction, you're supporting this podcast and helping to defray the cost for me to continue to produce ad-free content on a weekly basis. So thank you. Now here's the show. I'm excited to introduce my guest, Bob Bukowski. Hey, Bob. How are you? I'm doing good. Hey, we're both in New Jersey. I'm down in South Jersey. And, and wait, Are you Central or North Jersey? I'm in Central Jersey. I'm in Newark right now. Okay. And the case that you are going to talk to us about occurred in New York and Newark area, correct? Right. Just north up in Bergen County, uh, right on the Hudson River. Could you tell us first who was Nelson Gross? And then we'll get into the circumstances of why he was kidnapped and what happened. Well, Nelson Gross was a very unique individual. I say that for the fact that he was he was a very well-off-to-do man, but he was also involved in politics many years ago. He worked for President Nixon. In fact, he was involved in some frauds connected to the election that he actually was arrested by the FBI and went away for. He actually did time for. Oh, really? And, what kind of fraud? Uh, it was election fraud and it was also IRS fraud. And then he was also charged with perjury. Uh, he actually did six months uh, in a federal camp uh, and then was released. Uh, his wife was very much involved in politics also under the Nixon uh, era and Reagan era. She was she was involved with the United Nations. And then later on, when uh, after he retired, and he still owned um, a lot of properties, which I'll get into in a minute, uh, she was the racing commissioner, uh, horse racing commissioner for the state of New Jersey. So this family was well-to-do, well-known, uh, very prominent in their own way and very well off. 
He owned a lot of property along the Hudson Waterfront in Edgewater, New Jersey, which has now been built up. But he owned a restaurant which was uh, very big, and they're trying to bring it back. It's an old ferry boat, which they turned into the – it was the Binghamton Ferry Boat, and it was the Binghamton Restaurant, which was a nightclub and a restaurant, which he owned. But he wasn't actively involved in it anymore. He would just – his son ran it, but he would stop there two mornings a week and just to take care of the paperwork and the bills, and then he'd be off playing golf and what have you. He was retired. So uh, he enjoyed travel. He enjoyed everything in his life. So he was very much involved. So uh, he became a target just for who he was. So what happened was uh, on September 17, 1997, he gets kidnapped. We, the FBI, are not notified. The local police and the local prosecutor's office were investigating this his disappearance for three days. It happened on, a, I believe it was like a Tuesday or a Wednesday, if I can remember. But they didn't notify the FBI, didn't notify us until... That Friday, like 4 o'clock, we get brought into who he was. We get briefed on what the story is, that he's disappeared. Uh, His wallet was found at the restaurant. His car is missing. They can't account for him. He made some strange phone calls. He was seen at a, a local bank, and he has not been seen since. And they had no clues. There was no demand for a ransom. They had no idea what happened to him. They brought in the FBI in, and I caught the ticket on it, so I get the case. Uh, and we start looking at the man just to decide. And he had owned all his property. He had his background where he was arrested in politics. He, um, His wife was very prominent in politics. There was alleged that he had girlfriends. There was alleged that she had boyfriends. Um, there was alleged that there was some mob connections. There was alleged that there was all sorts of rumors about him that we had to actually divide up into I had separate teams looking into all these aspects, a combination of FBI agents and detectives, looking into each one of these aspects. And it was taking us all over the place. His wallet was found outside in the parking lot, and his son brought his wallet in and brought it into the um, to the, the office. That's what he told the police. So we interviewed him with his son. We said, where were you? Where, you know, where you at work? Because I came in later, and I found, I found a wallet out there. Well, we... His son had, a, uh, there was some allegations that he was involved in narcotics. So there was, there was another uh, look-see that we had to take at. Was it was it he involved in something that his father may have been kidnapped to pay off for? Now, we found out after talking to him, we found out he lied. We don't know why, but he lied to us. He didn't find a wallet in uh, the parking lot. It was actually in the office on the floor. We don't know why he created that story and sent us off, and he had to get polygraphed, and then that sent us into the hole looking into him that maybe there was some drug activities in his background. But we also found out that Nelson Gross's Easy Pass car, so the car in his Easy Pass, went across the bridge twice. In fact, this case is the reason that Easy Pass requires subpoenas. It went to court over this case. The FBI went to court over this case because Easy Pass only tells when a car passes over a bridge or a tunnel. But the information, it only gives you the car. It doesn't give you a person. So they they fought it for privacy, and now we have to subpoena it. But this was the case that actually went to court. The actual easy pass was presented in court. That was Nelson Gross's small story, side story to it. So the other thing is we had found out that he had went across the bridge twice. didn't make sense why, but he went across twice, once early in the morning and then once like an hour or so later. We also found out that he called. he, He left a message trying to get a hold of his financial advisor, saying, call me, call me, I need money, I want you to call me right now, I need money, I need money. But the guy was in the meeting, so he never got it. He was interviewed and said, well, I never got to talk to him, but he said he was calling up asking for money, and he actually had the, we heard the voice message. 
Nelson Gross also winds up going, this is what we found out, which we actually saw because we have the, we pulled the bank tapes. What he does is like um, an hour, two hours after he's kidnapped, he walks in to the branch bank where he banks, walks into this bank with a young Hispanic male. The male waits up front in the bank, and Nelson Gross walks alone, goes to the bank manager, and tells him that I need $20,000 cash. And he says, and the bank says, well, you know, they don't keep that much cash. They don't have that much cash for cash flow in and out all day long. They said, he's like, I, I, I can't, I don't have that kind of money. He says, look, he says, you know who I am. You know what I have. You know what I have in your bank. I want my money. And he says, well, you know, of course, they want to keep him calm and, and get his money. So he said, let me see what I could do. So he sat there for like 20 minutes, never said anything. He was in the bank for about 15, 20 minutes. The manager, after that long, finally scrapes up $20,000 cash puts it in a bag, and hands it to him. Nelson Gross never says anything to him. The Hispanic male is sitting in the front of the bank. They get up. They walk out together. Everyone in the bank said, we didn't think anything of it, but we did think it was strange because we, we, we've never seen him with that young Hispanic male before. We didn't know anything about it. But we did notice that they all got back into the car and left. So the bank people were not suspicious? It sounds well, they, suspicious. They were suspicious. They were suspicious. They wouldn't admit it because we actually saw the video. And we played. We let the video play after he left, and everyone in the bank ran together talking, pointing at the door. So they all were suspicious of it. But Nelson never said anything to the bank manager about being kidnapped that, that called the police. The Hispanic male sat all by himself and just sat there in the waiting area. 15, 20 minutes, and then they left. But they all knew it was strange because he's never been in there before with them. But no one said anything. They never called the police or anything. He wanted $20,000. He's more than worth it. He's a millionaire. They gave him his $20,000 cash, and he left. When we get back, I start. we start up with uh, certain things that went on with the investigation. That night, when we looked at the, the hits on the on the the cell towers, we started looking at the, the phone calls that were made from his car. And that's back when the phones were actually built in the car. And what we did was we looked and see, saw he made the last call he made at the bridge. Going across, actually bounced from one tower to the other because it's so busy at the George Washington Bridge. So I had the tech people. Now this is the weekend. And we're dealing with the people on... Now we have a full command post up. We have hundreds of FBI agents. I forget how many local detectives working. Probably another you know, 60 local detectives working this case, and we're working around the clock, and we're just taking over. So my thing was, I said, we've got to look at these phone calls and let's see what dropped and let's see what we can get back, because I know our tech guys are very good. Well, they come back with a phone number, and they said, this is the last phone number that he spoke to. We, we check it. It comes back to a, a female in, in the Bergen County area, and we said, wow. So I, said, I sent agents right up there right now. I said, go up there and let's see what the story is at the house, see if, see if he's there, if his car is there, what have you. They call and they call back. They said they're sitting on a the house. They said there's a female in the house. They can see through the windows, but they, they, his car is not around. They don't know if it's in a garage, but it's not around. I said, okay. We go up there, and I look at it, and I, I went up there. So now we're up there in the middle of the night. We're all having surveillance on a house because this is the only lead we have right now. And um, nothing seems odd. The lady was up late at night, but you could see her walking around all, all by herself in a house, beautiful big house, in a nice, uh, very exclusive area. You can, t you can tell she's very well off, too. So we didn't know if this was a girlfriend or whatever. Did he run away with her? We, again, no one knows. Now it's going on to over three days he's missing, and there's been no contact, no demand of a ransom. We had the incident at the bank, and now we have this phone call. So 
the, we go back the next day. I come up with a, a plan. I said, there's going to be two plans today. One, get on that girl, that lady. I want, I want tight surveillance, see where she goes, see what she does. It's Saturday. Let's stay with her. I also get the rest of the detectives and agents, and I divide them up, and I said, look, I saw the kid in the bank. I just came, I just came from New York City. That's where I worked in the New York division. I just came over only a couple months ago. I worked at Dominican Task Force. I said, you can tell ethnically that kid is Dominican. I said, um, I have a feeling there's going to be a Washington Heights connection. It's too close to this restaurant. We know it is a nightclub at night. I said, there might be some ties. I said, let's look, take the other, I don't want to get tunnel vision. I said, I'm sending a bunch of cars over. I said, I want you just to drive around Washington Heights and see if you can find his car. He had a, a very big uh, BMW uh, that could stand out um, with his license plate and what have you. I said, just take a shot. Go drive over there. We had nothing else going on. We had surveillance on the lady going. And then we had, I sent all the cars over there. So with all the investigation that we were still doing in New York, um, Actually, my friend became uh, that I used to work with when I was in New York and, and was good friends with became the, the lead agent for me, and that was Lenny Hatton. Lenny Hatton, um, as you know, is the uh, FBI agent who was killed on 9/11 in the World Trade Center. And he was a very good friend, an excellent agent. I was lucky to have him in this case, and even more lucky to have him as a friend. But he was the uh, he was my go-to uh, person whenever we had to do anything, and he handled with the evidence collection. Uh, and coordinating all the uh, leads that were done in New York when we weren't together. And when I went over there and worked over there with him, Lenny was by my side. Uh, Lenny was a big part of the investigation on the New York side. He helped put it all together which to bring it over. I mean, he was uh, he was my partner over there. I needed someone like that. You couldn't do it all alone. There was just too much going on, especially in two states. All right, so why don't we dedicate this episode to Lenny Hatton? Perfect. Perfect. So what happens with the lady? They follow her. She goes to downtown uh, Anglewood. And what she does down there, she goes to little shops. She goes to antique shops. She goes to the bakery. She goes to the cleaners. Typical stuff people do on a Saturday. So then they get back to the house. They said, what do you want us to do? I said, you know what? This is crazy. We can't just keep If she's not doing anything crazy, but we know she's got the phone call to that car or someone made a phone call to him. I said, let's go and uh, interview her. So they went well, in. That was, kind of, that was kind of risky. Oh, it was risky, but we had nothing else. But based on her behavior, my gut feeling was she's not doing anything wrong. She's not hiding. There was no one else. She wasn't visiting anybody. It was all day long on a Saturday. We had surveillance on her. I mean, now it's getting into the evening hours. He's disappearing. I said, this might be our only lead. Maybe it is. Maybe she knows where he went to if he took off. But she's still there. And she's not married. We found out. She's divorced. And she... Um, so I said, let's take the shot. Let's go and talk to her. My gut feeling says, go talk to her. We go up. They talk to her. The first thing she says, I know Nelson. I I know I know the wife from the racetrack. I she's very prominent. She's they run in the same social circles, and she's like, wow, I know him. I know him very well, and I didn't know he was missing. So we're like, oh, what do we got here? So we explained the whole thing about the car. So we said. Um, the only way we're going to eliminate whether she was in the state, and the agents called back and said, look, we believe her. She seems very honest. She wants to help. She's sincerely concerned about Nelson. They, they, they got a good vibe. Same thing they re- relayed back to me. I said, all right. I said, the only other thing we can do is her phone is in her car. I said, we want to make sure that her car wasn't used 
by Nelson to the phone calls. So we want to take her car and process it for fingerprints. Now, she's got a $90,000 car. Something was bothering me still about that last phone call. So I said, see if we can get permission, should give us consent to give us the car, and we can hold the car, and then we'll process it. She agrees to everything. She says, absolutely. He wasn't in my car. There's, I have no problems with it. I wasn't with him. I'll help any way I can. So we we get her. We cover the license plate because now the media is catching on to a lot of this stuff. We cover the license plate. We take her car, we, and we tow it off to a garage where it was going to be processed. So I said to the ERT people, our evidence people, I said, how are you going to process this car? Is it, is it like I think you're going to do? Are you going to super, you super glue in this car? I said, yes. Yeah. So the SAC was there. I said, do you understand that? This $90,000 car, if we're in a wrong and I'm not totally comfortable in everything we're doing yet, just my gut feeling is saying to wait. Um, this We're going to have to buy a whole new interior for this car because everything gets frozen in place. And the SAC looked at me and said, if you want to do it, let's do it. I said, all right, well, you know what? She gave it to us on consent. Let's sit on it. I said, I want to wait till the morning. This was going on Sunday night. I said, I want to wait on the morning before we do anything with the car, as long as she gave it to us on consent and she didn't need it. Can I, can I stop you? Because sure. I, I think a lot of people will be very curious as to this whole crazy glue, fingerprint, and the damage that it does. So could you explain well, that a little bit? When they fume a car looking, or the, when they fume anything looking for fingerprints, whether it's, um, whether it's a gun or if it's a package or if it's uh, an interior of a car, wherever the fingerprints are and where, any kind of imperfection or whatever, the fumes are going to freeze it in place. And it's glue. It's crazy glue. So it's actually going to glue the prints to wherever they are. So anything that's touching that car that the people normally touch, that the, the owner of the car and everything, those fingerprints are going to now be very prominent on, on all the chrome, on the plastic, on the glass, on the, on the rearview mirror. So it's going to be permanent. My gut feeling was... Let's hold off on that phone call and this car. As long as we have it, let's just wait. The second thing we had going, I sent people over to Washington Heights to go find a car. And we got lucky. We found the car. We found his car on the side of the road in Washington Heights, and it had several parking tickets on it. So now we knew we definitely had the Washington Heights connection. We had to process that car. We had emergency services come, and everyone says, oh, we're just going to tow the car. He says, no, wait a minute. I said, get emergency services open to pop the trunk, make sure his body's not in it. So we had to do that. I said, try not to damage the car too much because we have to process it. But they did uh, pop the trunk. And, they, and we also found out that his golf clubs were missing. He had a very expensive set of golf clubs, but he wasn't in the trunk. They have all the side of the street parking, but he did get some parking tickets there. But they just kept putting tickets on the car. This nice car had dust on it. It was sitting there for a few days, and he kept getting tickets on it. So we did hooked the car, and now it hit in the media. When it hit that we recovered through New York, that we recovered Nelson's Gross's car, it went viral that he was kidnapped, and there's there's an, uh, a joint kidnapping investigation into him. The media really took off, and we got a lot of play out of it. Whether we wanted it or not, we got it. So now it's all over the news that he's missing. Our command post, we're getting some phone calls in and uh, the hotline, but there's really nothing. No one's telling us anything. Now I go back to the car. It was bothering me about that phone call that was made because she said she didn't make the phone call. The phone call was never made from her car, but 
we couldn't figure out why the phone company was giving us that number. So I waited till Monday morning because I figured like anything else, any other business, anyone with senior and the most experienced people in any business are going to have the day jobs Monday to Friday. So I had our tech people call the phone company again. I said, go over it again with them and let them actually go and pull the data from the towers and make sure we got the right phone number before we do anything to this car. An hour later, I get a call from the tech people. They said, Bobby, you're right. Don't do it. I said, why? What happened? They said they just found out the senior people said the technology at that time, her last three numbers were 111. But what happens at the tower, the number that was actually called was the 201, let's say 528, whatever it was, 628. And then it was like a 6, then it was a 111. They said when, because it was pushed from tower to tower, they were dropping the numbers. When it drops the number, they puts a 1 up automatically. So that really isn't a real phone number. So it wasn't her car that was made that phone number. The car so had nothing was, to do with it. So we, so it was since just we a were sidetracked. Yeah, it was just that a coincidence. She knew them. Wow. Yeah, so this had us going, but it was a gut feeling that said, don't go with it and get to the tower because it just didn't, her reactions and her conversation with the agents that was there, it just didn't fit that she'd be involved in any kind of, uh, she wasn't trying to hide anything. So that, that just spun us off in one direction. Now we had the media going on. So all of a sudden, we're going for about a week on a command post, and it's still in the news. Finally, we get a call from uh, NYPD, and we're checking everything about this man's background. We're looking into his wife, his son, him, his possible connections to the mob, possible connections to dirty dealings, possible connections to his past, uh, the restaurant, where the, you know, was, did something happen on there? Was he being extorted through some other way that we didn't know about? We had, like I said, 200 agents going 100 different directions until we got the one phone call from NYPD. And they said they just had a kid come in that was arrested for narcotics about a day ago. And he came back into the detective that arrested him and said, if I have some information about that kidnapping on TV, would that help me? And, of course, the detective said, absolutely, yes. He says, well, I know one of the kids involved in, in the kidnapping. So it turned out that it was pillow talk. He was sleeping with a girl who was also sleeping with one of the kidnappers. And she tells, relates the story, that when they, she was with one of the kidnappers, and when they were watching TV and it came on the news about Nelson Gross being missing and the car being found in Washington Heights, the kid starts crying and runs out the apartment door. The girl chases him out and says, what's going on? And says, you know something about what's going on TV. Why did you get excited? And he said, yes, I was involved. And he mentioned two of the other people involved. Well, she tells that not to the police. She tells that to her other boyfriend, who in turn comes into the police department. So now NYPD gets the kid in, and we identify everyone. Now we find out that they're juveniles, which makes it tough for the FBI when we find out they're juveniles to investigate a, a kidnapping. Now this is after a week 24-7 command post going on. We get this one break, and the kid says he knows who's involved. NYPD is able to swoop them up along with the FBI, but we let them take the lead only because they're juveniles and because of the heavy restrictions on us until we can finally get make sure that these kids are really involved. And it was three of them. Two of them were 17 years old, and one of them was 19. And it was a 19-year-old that decided to cooperate. We went through a lot with this. Then we had to come in and get federal 
charges against them, and we had to get them waved up into adult status. There was three individuals that were involved in this. Two of them were 17, so the kid that was 19 told us the whole story. And this is what happened. Christian Velez was actually, who's 17, was actually the one who was the mastermind behind this whole case. And he actually had a cousin that worked at the Binghamton restaurant. And she worked there for like two years. Had nothing to do with this. Had nothing, no involvement or anything. She wound up getting Christian uh, like a year before when he was like 16 to work as a busboy there. He worked there for like two weeks and left. But he always said, man, the guy that owns this has a lot of money. We should rob him. And he, he kept plotting that. Well, what Christian Velez used to do, he lived in Washington Heights, right over the um, right over the George Washington Bridge of Wadsworth Avenue. And what he did was he used to come get his friends, and they would ride their bicycles, go over and do surveillance on the restaurant. And he kept saying, "We have to, we got to, we got to kidnap, we got to rob this man that owns him." And he was actually pointing to the son who ran that was the manager of the restaurant, who he somewhat knew because he worked there. But not that the manager would even know him. He was only there for two weeks. You know, they go through busboys and waitresses all the time. But Miguel and Christian, the 17-year-olds, would go over on bicycle all the time. What they also did, these two kids, they used to rob people on, on the George Washington Bridge. They would take their, their bikes back when the mongooses, people used to ride those bikes, which are worth, you know, three to $6,000, these bicycles. They would take them at gunpoint and just steal the bikes off these kids uh, or people uh, as they rode, rode across the George Washington Bridge on their long uh, trips. They were never caught for it. But we came out later. This is what they did. So they, they were involved in things, but they were never arrested. They had some brushes with the law as juveniles, but now they're, they're only 17. Again, it's tough for the FBI to be involved with. But we had a 19-year-old who was the getaway driver, and they needed someone to drive. When the one day they decided, they said, let's go and do, do this. Let's go kidnap and, ro- and rob the owner of the restaurant. So they went to one of their friends, and he said, okay, I'll drive. That kid's mother got mad at him and said, no, you missed enough school. You're not taking off with your friends today. You're going to school. So that kid didn't get involved. And he was only being brought in at the last minute because he can drive. So they went to Anthony Estevez. And Anthony's like, yeah, screw it. I'm not going to go to school. I'll, I'll take you. Let's go. We'll go rob this guy. So he drives the, the three of them over. They go over early in the morning. Um, it was like a, a, I believe it was a Tuesday morning. And they went over there and... While they were waiting in the parking lot, Nelson Gross shows up. Now, they know him. He's connected to the restaurant, but he's only there two nights, two mornings uh, a week. They were actually going to go rob the son, who's the manager, but doesn't come in until later. The father's an early riser. He gets over there. He was actually going in to play golf in Long Island, so he was going to go in and do some paperwork and then drive out to Long Island to, uh, to his country club out there and play golf. How old is he? How old was he? He was uh, in his early 70s. Actually, he was 65. I'm sorry. He was 65 at the time. Yeah. He pulled up in his silver BMW uh, and went into the restaurant. So Miguel and Christian follow him in, and they go into his office. They have a gun on him. They take the gun out, and they said, give us your money. And the guy's like, I don't have any kind of money. I don't keep money on me. Most rich people don't have money on them. Everything is credit cards and and he's like, I, how much? I don't have any money. Whatever was said in the, in the room there, they just decided, let's take him. Well, Nelson was smart enough to leave, his, to drop his wallet. 
to show that he was there and the fact that he left his wallet. He he dropped it on the floor. They then left and got into the into his car, and the other car followed. And they drove back. This was the first time they crossed the George Washington Bridge and drove around all over Washington Heights. And then they started negotiating. They said they wanted $100,000. He didn't know if it was something uh, involved with his son. That's what they said, but they kept saying, no, we just know you're rich. Give us money. We want your money. We want $100,000. Otherwise, you're, we're going to kill you. So they go round and round. Nelson Gross is a businessman. He negotiates his ransom while they're driving around through Washington Heights. He negotiates it down to $20,000. That's when he made the phone call to uh, his financial advisor who didn't answer the phone. He left a message. And then he decided, come on, we'll just go to the bank. I'll get you the money and be done with it. And that's when he drove him to the bank, got $20,000, handed it to him. But the one thing we found out when we asked the wife, you know, what was the $20,000? Like, is that odd when he was first missing with $20,000? The interesting answer she had, she goes, he pays that in a weekend and go golfing. It's not, that's not much money to us wow. or to him. Yeah, so it was different. And everyone else is thinking, wow, it's a lot of money. And those kids thought it was a hell of a lot oh, of money. Oh, I'm sure they did. So she's like, $20,000. He goes, you know, he goes to a, you know, he can fly away for the weekend and do whatever. She goes, we do that all the time. That's nothing. So anyway, and he continued to tell us the story. The story is that when they went back out and walked out of the bank, they said, get in the car. And he says, look, I gave you money. What more do you want? Just leave. They said, get in the car. They get back in the car, and Miguel and Christian get into an argument while Anthony pulls up in the other car and says, what are we doing? I thought you were going to let him go. And he said, no, just drive. Go back to New York. So they go back to New York, and they're driving around again. Now, in the car, we're finding out that the three of them were, were, were driving around saying, you know, what are we doing? Just let him go. They're all speaking in Spanish. He doesn't understand Spanish. We got the money. Just let him go. And Christian Velez kept saying, no, no, he can identify us. He knows me. He knows me. I work there. And the father had nothing to do with any of the employees other than signing paperwork. He had no idea that the kid ever worked there. I don't even think the son could have identified him. When we showed pictures to him, the son, Nelson's son, couldn't identify him. Because he was only there for two weeks as a busboy. So, and he wasn't full-time. So anyway, they drove around, they drove around through New York, and they finally get on to the Henry Hudson Parkway, and they're driving south. So they stop right on the Henry Hudson Parkway in broad daylight. Now, this is only at probably three to four hours after he was taken from the restaurant. They stop on a highway. They tell him to get out. Now, he's in dress slacks, leather shoes, a blue blazer. He's dressed, you know, very uh, business type, but no tie. They tell him to get out and go down the hill towards the river. The other kids are all talking in Spanish, saying, Christian, what are you doing? Just let him go. He said, no, let's get this over with. They go down the hill. Now they're standing over them. And they get into, the three of them get into an argument. It was told to us that they kept saying, Christian, think of your grandfather, think of your father. Why you want to kill this man? He'll never recognize us. Let's, we got the money, let's go. Anthony Estevez says, I didn't get involved here to kill anybody. I'm leaving. So he has his own car. He leaves. Now Nelson, Nelson's car is sitting on the highway. So they tell Nelson to kneel down. They said, we have to kill him. Let's kill him. So Christian and Miguel take out the gun and a penknife. Now, the gun didn't work. It was a broken gun. 
They knew it, but Nelson never knew that it was the gun didn't work. How they got the gun was from an 11-year-old in Washington Heights. Wow. The 11-year-old used to steal it from his mother's boyfriend who lived in the apartment who used to fix illegal guns and sell them. This kid would take it from under the bed and rent it to bad guys on the street for $50 a day to do the robberies on the George Washington Bridge and what have you. He was renting it to them for $50 to go rob the owner of the Binghamton restaurant. He was 11 years old. Wow. Subsequently met him, and, and all we could do is charge him within the juvenile system in New York. So now they're standing over him with a broken gun. They tell him to kneel down, and, and they decide to kill him. Well, the only way they could kill him was to hit him over the head with a big rock and begin stabbing him with a pen knife that one of them had. Oh, my God. So they knock him unconscious, and they continue stabbing. And he laid there, and he actually bled to death is how he died, a slow and painful death. The kids left. Now, this went on for a week before we found out all this and we were able to arrest them and everything. We found out that the kids would go every day, Christian and Miguel would go every day down to the bridge by the water to see if the body was found, and they would check it every day. They would always tell their mother or something, oh, we're going fishing today in the river. That was the code that we were going down to see if the body was still there. And it was there every day. The ironic thing is where he was killed was right on the, right just short of the banks of the Hudson River by the George Washington Bridge. And if you looked under the bridge across the river was the Binghamton restaurant where he was kidnapped from. Wow. One of the other techniques I was able to, to bring up, which was back then was classified, but it was not classified anymore. Everybody has it. But we used to use the heat-seeking plane to come up and find different bodies and people in, in the wooded areas and for nighttime. The SAC said, hey, go for it. It'll come up. And I called down to um, our special operations and I said, look, I know there's a body somewhere. It's probably along the Hudson. We found a car. It can't be too far. I said, I know when a body decays, there's a chemical reaction, which heats up the body. Is your plane strong enough to pick that up? And the captain of the plane says, you know, we've always gone with that theory too says, we believe it can happen, but we can't prove it, and we'll come up and try it in your case. I said, this is great. So they came up. They flew up. I stopped them just short of the George Washington Bridge. Little did I know they were just on the other side of the George Washington Bridge. They found dead carcasses from animals and shiny rocks that were heating up from the, uh, from the sun. We never found the body, but they, they did try. So we went to every extent to try to find Nelson Gross, when we thought he was. And we were just short of letting the plane go as far as he did to, from where the body was, just as a, a side story, which was great that we tried everything. But now we have the kids cooperating. So the one kid tells us, after we get him in there, the kid tells us where the body is. So we get down there, we recover the body. Uh, we have confessions from pretty much everybody, but we can't use the juvenile conf confessions in federal court. So now we have to charge him. We have to bring them over to New Jersey. So how was it decided who would have jurisdiction in this case? Well, because the arrests were broken, they were juveniles, um, and NYPD got the uh, first initial confession from a couple of them. Um, they wanted to charge the case. Of course, uh, Southern District, Mary Jo White, um, she wanted to charge the case. But, you know, we had been at this for a week and a half with a command post and all the leads and... Uh, finding the car, and so obviously we wanted to charge the case. 
So we came to a decision because he was such a rich and prominent man. The example in was New put Jersey. on the table, right? In New Jersey, the, the example was put on the table. We said, if this was Donald Trump from New York and he was kidnapped and murdered and found in New Jersey, wouldn't you want to prosecute him in New York? And that was the example we used, and they and they concurred. They said, you know, you're right. If it was the other way around, we would want to do it. So that's when we we took over um, and continued with the prosecution and the investigation. Now we had to get him waved up to be an adult, and the only one who can do that is the the Attorney General of the United States has to okay it. Oh, really? Yes, and I have the had a, I had the paperwork signed by the Attorney General. So who was the Attorney General? It was Janet Reno. Oh, Janet Reno, I remember her well. Yeah, we uh, saw her signature on the documents and all that, that we were able to wave them up to be charged as adults. She signed off personally. And then they were charged in federal court, all three of them. So we were getting set for a trial, and we figured, let's just take a shot. we got to now get another confession from the kid that was cooperating. So we had to go back in with his attorney, and we did a proffer with him. And it took several proffer sessions for him to completely come around and finally realize he's being charged with murder and he's uh, going to be charged federally. Um, it could have been a death penalty case. We obviously weren't going to go for that because we just wanted to solve it. And they were juveniles, two of them. He broke down the whole story for us. Uh, we finally got him on board. It took a while because he had realized what he was up against, that he was, but he knew he was going to get some concession for being cooperating. He wasn't actually involved in the murder, but he was involved in the plot, conspiracy. He was the getaway driver in the robbery, uh, in the kidnapping. Um, when was all said and done, he did get, he did cooperate, and then the other two pled. So even though they were deemed adults in the federal system, you could not use those initial confessions that they made when they were still juveniles? It would have been in court tied up for a long, long time. Could we have brought it in? There would have been more hearings to try to get juvenile statement in, even though they were waived up, but they were taken under New York rules uh, in the state court. At that time, in New York, detectives can interview juveniles without a parent being present. In federal court, we always have to have a parent or a guardian present. So there was a lot of rules we had to get around and that were a hindrance to us. But even though we know we had the right kids, we knew we had the right story, we had the one kid who was an adult telling us everything but we still had to deal with them. So we're getting ready. We figured we're going to go to trial. But what turned out, we offered them a deal. It was a straight 29 years that they would plead to without parole, eligible for parole after 29 years, because they're only 17 now. They're actually put in, in a, uh, a local juvenile facility because we couldn't even put them in an adult prison, even though they were waived up until they were convicted. So we had the one, the getaway driver, who cooperated, and he pled, and he wound up getting um, 17 years for his cooperation. The other two got 29 years. They pled to, without a trial, uh, 29 years with uh, no, no eligible for parole until 29 years. The interesting thing is when he was sentenced, especially Christian Velez, who thought he was a tough kid from Washington Heights, one of the Side stories, again, that happened with this case is when we had found out who it was, we had done search warrants on all their apartments where they lived in Washington Heights. When we did a search warrant on two of them, other than Christian Velez, we got the bloody clothes. We got everything that was still stashed in their rooms in their house. They didn't know what to do with it. 
we found them in, in plastic bags and what have you, uh, either in in the apartment building or in, in their apartments itself. When we went to and did a, a search warrant at Christian Velez's house, we went in there and, and nobody found anything. No sign of any of the clothes. We searched the whole building. We got we had permission from the super. We got more search warrants. We couldn't find any of the bloody clothes. We couldn't figure out why we didn't find anything from him. But we left the apartment. Well, two days later, and that was like on a Friday, on a Sunday afternoon, I get a phone call from the New York office calling me saying that Mr. Velez, Christian Velez's father, is calling saying that we missed the clothes in the apartment. I'm like, it's not that big of an apartment. Right, how could we have missed it? So I get my counterpart um, from the New York side that was helping me, and I get some other agents. They said, look, they're saying the clothes are there. We missed them. I don't know how we could have missed them. Let's we, let's just rush over there before something changes. We get there. We knock on the door. We're back in the now. The whole Velez family's there. There's other brothers and sisters. There's the mother who's just crying, and there's the elder father just standing there. So he, he doesn't even speak English. We have the agents talking to him in Spanish, and, and he just says basically, he goes, "Follow me. You missed him." He brings us right into his bedroom where we were before. He opens the closet door, and all spoon on the, on the closet floor. Were all the bloody clothes, the shoes, the, the uh, pants. There's no way you guys missed that the first time. Well, what he said was, that's not my son. My son wouldn't do this. I don't know who that is. And he walked away. He totally disowned his son right in front of us. He walked out of the room. The mother and everybody cried. And we we were able to secure the clothes and take them. The family put him back in there because the father said, there's no way a murderer can be my son. He totally just disowned them right then and there in front of us. Wow. wow. Obviously, this kid was raised by a good family. Wow. Christian Velez thought he was such a tough kid. Um, and he was in the Washington Heights. But the judge made it such a big deal that they were sentenced uh, a year and a half, about a year later it took, by the time we did everything with court. And he sent him, sentenced him to a, an adult facility, and he sentenced to a, a prison penitentiary says, you committed murder, you're an adult, you're going to do adult time. I'm going to see too that the Bureau of Prisons put you in a tough place. Six months later, after being in there, after the case is over, he pled, he, he went off to jail. Um, I get a phone call from the Bureau of Prisons. They said, agent, yeah, so-and-so from the Bureau of Prisons. I said, yeah. And I said, he goes, I'm calling you about uh, Christian Velez. I said, yes. He said, um, Christian Velez is having a very tough time in jail, and uh, we're going to have to move him from the facility. He says, I know the judge wanted him in a penitentiary, but I think we have to move him. He's not going to make it if I don't. He said, well, you know, it's your call. He's your he's your resident. I said, you do whatever you have to do. I said, you know, do it. So he was having a tough time in jail, as tough as he thought he was from watching the heights, even though he converted somebody. He was having a tough time in jail. And what does that mean? In other words... You think you think you're tough, but there's always someone tougher. Mm-hmm. And he he must have met some other people that uh, whatever they were doing with him and using him for how they were treating him, he wasn't doing very well. The other interesting thing is about four years later, I was sitting at my desk and I got a phone call. And I pick up the phone and he says, uh, Agent Bukowski, I don't know if you remember me. I'm Christian Velez. I said, Oh, hi Christian, how are you? He said, I'm not doing well. He said, uh, is there anything I can do to help myself? He says, because I'm not doing well in jail. I said, Christian, I don't know what you can do. It's been four years. I don't know if you hear something in there. You call me. We can see what, you know, if there's 
there's information that you're getting, but I know that as far as you've been off the streets for so long, I said it makes it tougher to try to help you, but you have my number, you found me, and I never heard from him again. So I know he did his complete sentence. I don't know if he ever got back with his family, if they ever made up, or uh, whatever happened to him, but I know he was not having a good time in jail. Here are some vicious, brutal killers, but at the end, it's a 17-year-old kid Right. Who, my God, really messed up messed up his life. I used to be a juvenile probation officer before I became an agent, and so I guess that's why I'm feeling some of this right now. It, um, it, it added a different, different, uh, a whole different dynamic to the case because he was a 17 year old. It was and a still very in high school. Killing. You were talking about them skipping. Yeah. They high were still in high school, day. 17 years old. Here we we couldn't even arrest them as the FBI right up front without getting, you know, the, the Attorney General of the United States had to sign off on it. Um, it's just, it was an amazing case, and it was, and it's 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 a crazy thing. The two 17 years old, and here the one, the, his friends were trying to talk him out of it. Nelson Gross bled to death. He had a very painful, and uh, he was found in a fetal position, which is the natural position that we all go into. So all those factors came in that the judge heard that, you know, said, this is a vicious killing. We're not going for the death penalty. We're going to just let you go. You know, we're going to sentence you to a minimum. We're going to get this over with, 29 years. And it's it's going to take him through a good portion of his life. It's just gone. Yeah. And I have to say this because I don't want anybody to think that I don't feel even more for Nelson Gross and his family. I certainly do. But, you know, I, I I also have a little bit for these kids who somehow went terribly, terribly wrong in their judgment. Two 17-year-olds, a 19-year-old, and an 11-year-old that furnished the gun. <sighs> this is the neighborhood they're growing up in. It was a tough neighborhood. They're all into different criminal acts. They graduated big time, but they paid the price. So then if he was 17, then you're talking about him being 45 or 46, you know, when he finally uh, was released. Or he's still in. How many years ago was that? 97? Yeah. Yeah. So he's only done 20. So he still has uh, a little less than nine to go. Yeah. You know, and the thing is, I guess the, the question that, you know, I have to ask, is did Nelson Gross have those same feelings that these are seventeen year year old, and that's why he went to the bank and quietly took up the twenty thousand and handed it to them that in his mind he just never would have imagined that these seventeen year old high school kids would do what they did he obviously because we could never understand that he had all the time in the world to write a note to mention to the manager. Hey, this kid's, you know, they got a gun there. He thought, I'm going to give him 20 grand, let him go away. I'll be done with this. I'll go, you know, he negotiated it down. What we did recover, we did find out that they bought a motorcycle with it. They bought um, a, a used car. The money was gone. Within like three or four days, they spent the $20,000 on all sorts of crazy little things. Uh, we recovered from the house from several houses and from the street there, a used car. That's what they did with the money. So they thought they got all this money. It was gone in in a few days. It's just a shame. This man thought he could negotiate it down. 
He obviously felt he was in control of the situation. He never thought he was going to have to get back in the car with them. He thought they were just going to leave him alone, and it would go away. But it didn't happen. Based on the autopsy and the story we put together, like I said, we weren't brought in for three days before we were in, but he was killed within probably about four hours after he was kidnapped. He died. You've worked a number of cases, and the fact that you chose this case to review on this podcast episode tells me that this is one that's kind of haunted you for a while. It has. Because it, it, was, it was so young, it was senseless, it didn't have to happen. They could have robbed him. They could have just taken the money. He would, Like I said, he was willing to give it up. But they went that far and didn't have the kid call me from jail years later. And have the family write write them off when we're when we're you know going through the whole search warrants and saying we didn't find the clothes we did and we missed the clothes and then he opened a closet that we searched I mean there was only one closet in the bedroom and there's the clothes and the father says something in Spanish where he just he says my son would never do this he's not my son and he walks out of the room the mother's crying the the sisters are crying I mean it, it was just like I said things like that you don't forget. And it was a senseless killing. And what did they get out of it? Nothing. They ruined their lives. 17 years old. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I'd like to take a moment to just ask you to, to briefly tell us all when you joined the FBI and why you joined the FBI. Well, I joined in 1986. I was there for 25 years. I was actually in law enforcement before that. Before that, I was in NIS or NCIS. Did that for five years, but I was trying to get into the FBI. And before that, I was a police officer for a short amount of time. So I've been in law enforcement for a long time, but I always wanted to get to the FBI. I always thought that was a, a great agency, which it was. I'm proud of every day. I loved every day of it. Not many people can say that when you leave the FBI. But uh, I mean, not every day was perfect. But for a job and a career, I loved every day of it. Loved going to work. I got involved in a lot of great cases like this one. Uh, it gives you opportunity. There was travel. I worked in Florida. Worked in New York City worked in New Jersey and I was able to travel to different places on different cases and it's an, it's an amazing job uh, and I, I like I said I was very proud to be part of the FBI and very very proud to be part of that family I'm glad to see that you're keeping these uh, the stories alive Jerry you're doing a great job with this keeping these uh, uh, some of these cases that the people that don't even know what we're involved in I work now at the US Attorney's Office in uh, Newark they hired me I coordinate investigations, and I deal with a lot of the police departments now. And what I do is I establish these uh, cases and they, which ones are going to be adopted. A lot of gun cases or some are gang cases. All I do is put it together, get a federal prosecutor, and give it to the ATF, give it, to, give, it give a lot of cases to the FBI, and let them run with it. I only coordinate. I deal with the, the larger police departments in the state of New Jersey. We go into the you know the, the really tough neighborhoods where a lot of the, the crime is, and we try to... Uh, pick out the really bad guys, the ones that deserve to be prosecuted federally, the ones that are, are doing the shootings and the homicides and getting caught with the guns. And that's what uh, that's what I'm doing now. So I'm still at it, but a little different, but still a lot of fun. And that's the end of the interview. As always, back at jerrywilliams.com, you'll find photos of Bob Bukowski, links to newspaper articles about the kidnapping and murder of Nelson Gross. There's a missing person flyer for him and other photos related to the case. 
If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you share it with your friends, family, and associates. I make it easy for you. At the bottom of the episode show notes, you'll find all the social media share buttons. And of course, if you're listening to the episode on your cell phone, you can share it directly from your device. My crime fiction recommendation is First to Die by James Patterson. As I promised during my last recommendation, which was his 11th book, that I was going to be fair to him and go back and listen to the Women's Murder Club series from the very beginning. And I'm glad I did, because this book was excellent. It's about four women who become friends, a homicide inspector in the San Francisco Police Department, a medical examiner, an assistant district attorney, and a journalist who works for the San Francisco Chronicle, who get together and solve murders. An excellent first book in the series. It introduced all the characters and concentrated mostly on homicide inspector Lindsay Boxer. It has a great external story about the murder of brides and grooms on their wedding day and a very emotional internal story about her illness and new romance with her detective partner. I had not read a James Patterson book before this book and the one that I recommended before. And I have to tell you, I enjoyed it to the point where James Patterson may have a new fan. I've already downloaded the second book in the series, so I might be hooked. So again, my crime fiction recommendation is First to Die by James Patterson. And while you're at Amazon.com picking up your copy of First to Die, don't forget to also check out my FBI crime thriller, Pay to Play. This episode was sponsored by FBIRetired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening and hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.